This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. Okay. Hello. Hello. Welcome back to Death by Southwest, the podcast where each week I share a different grisly murder story unique to the American Southwest, while my sister and co-host tries to piece together the clues and unravel the mystery behind each of these heinous crimes. I am your host, Margot, and I'm here with my sister, Jenna, and this is episode 25 part two of the toy box killer and for those of you who don't remember though i'm not sure how you could forget this horrific horrific story this is one of the most twisted crime stories to ever come out of the southwest it is the story of david parker ray who has been dubbed the toy box killer His heinous crimes spanned over four decades, leaving a trail of victims and unimaginable horror across New Mexico. And in these episodes about the Toy Box Killer, we are diving into his dark psyche, taking a chilling look at the shocking depths of his depravity and the unsuspecting victims who fell into his clutches. But we're going to start off with something a little bit more light, because this was pretty heavy last time and and will be a bit heavy probably again but we're gonna keep it light in the beginning so I did ask it on Instagram today if we had any listeners had questions we got a couple so I'm gonna ask you some of those and then we got a lot of responses from several truck drivers yeah we're listen. we're thinking about doing a, a niche podcast yeah about- Truck driving, truck drivers, truck drivers, truck life, truck stops. Yep. Yeah. So if we have any, we have, I think, four people that I've spoken to through various social medias um, who drive trucks and and every, all of you guys have been super helpful. I'm going to share some of your responses because Jenna asked a bunch of questions about truck drivers on, it was on the bonus or on the actual episode, I can't remember. Yeah. What spurred this all? Um, I think, I think someone reached out who was a truck driver and you had said like, oh, I'm so intrigued by it. I have a bunch of questions. Do they um, pee in bottles? Right. Yeah. Yes. So since we've already done the sense of place on truth or consequences and, um, Elephant Butte, we are just going to, at the beginning of this episode, cover some of this truck driver, um, response that we've gotten. Let's hear it. I also was thinking... Again, I know we always talk about the comments. I think it's important to share both the good ones and the bad ones. We got not a great one, I don't know, Monday, hmm. where someone commented on Apple, uh, just reading, boring, not good. Yeah. And I thought, you know, it's true. In the the sense of place in the begin, like the first handful of episodes, I don't know, I tried to make them trivia questions and kind of more interactive instead of me just kind of telling you about a place you're saying like the first handful that yeah. we ever recorded right yeah. like i don't know the first 10 15 episodes mm-hmm. i think maybe i don't know if i made more of an effort to make them trivia or it just kind of 
came now. Na- I'm not sure. Or maybe you fell off of the trivia because I never knew any of the answers. <laughs> maybe. That's true. I don't know. But I think I, I do recognize that. And that's why the the not great comments, I think, are helpful sometimes because it, it, it causes me to like look back and be like, huh. Are, am I just reading out loud to Jenna? Like, could we do a do a better job of making this more something? But it's inform. I think the purpose is informative, uh, just to give a sense of place. Essentially, mm-hmm. also, this goes back to not everyone's going to like parts of it or all of it or any of us. That's and I- because we got some comments whenever throughout this time that we've been recording that it's like the beginning is too long or too chatty, and if right. you trivia me. It's going to be too long. Well, and I have started, I've made an effort to on every show notes now, I put the timestamps of how long, you know, we do the sense of place from this time to this time, and then the actual episode starts. So the people who don't care for it can just fast forward and they know how far to go. But I did, you're right, I was thinking that today that we've talked about this a bunch. I know we're not for everybody. The podcast isn't for everybody. But seeing the real kind of, contrast in in reviews and comments some people are like hate it you guys are annoying you banter too much whatever and then some people are like i love it this is the best true crime podcast ever it's 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 interesting it's just well, interesting. it's kind of a reflection of real life well not everyone likes me that's true me neither as we seems to be a habit we kind of let you guys know where we're recording each time because it's always different not for long though because we are going to turn my guest bedroom that has a studio in it, we're going to turn it into a studio, the studio room. Yeah, studio room. The studio is too small for both of us to comfortably record in. So we're going to take the studio apart and turn that whole room into a studio room where we will like hopefully generally record and it will be one place always. But for now, we kind of record all over. And so we are at my house but because Mark is here and all 3,000 animals that we have are here, we are in my bedroom recording and Kat and Izzy are here with us in the bedroom. Also, I was wondering if there, now I'm looking at my mic, my microphone and I'm wondering, there's got to be covers for the microphone so they don't pick up all this animal hair that then touches my lips as I'm trying to talk. Well, once we are, have the studio room and we get microphone stands, there is a um, a filter mm. that, that sits right here. I'm just going to take a piece of saran wrapped after I pick up all the fur <laughs> off of this microphone I these, tonight. I think these are machine washable. Oh. There's a lot of hair. I just felt it scratching my face. On our microphones, there's a lot of hair. We have a lot of animals around. Uh, anyways, we're at my house. We're in the bedroom. If you hear some background noises... <laughs> which I know we need to just put at the beginning of every episode, Indiana's outside the door whining to get in. So, But let's jump in. We got three listener questions. Well, one's a comment. Um, Sandy Cakes on Instagram says, just finished part one of the toy box. So freaking good, which I like. So, And I guess her full name, she said, from Sandra. So thank you, Sandra. Wow, Sandra, you've also got a, um, you know, a real... I don't know what it is, but like tolerance. A, for, yeah, tolerance. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, like, that's good. Yeah, because woof. Yeah, it was rough. Um, and then we have two questions. So the the next question is from T zero N one W R A. Wow. And they say, "What's one case you wish you could cover, but you can't because it isn't in the Southwest?" Which is an interesting question. Oh, I can't think of any that I. 
off the top of my head, except for some of the big, like the Idaho murders. I know that's been covered so extensively. Yeah, but it's still going on. So it's exactly not that they have to be current relevant. But right. Yeah. That's one I've been very interested in. Yeah. Um, what about um, California? I mean, I guess that's South, what, like Manson? Yeah. Charles I mean, Manson. I think eventually we'll probably have to branch out to California because we'll need to cover a little bit more space and it could be Southwestern ish. Well, because. And I don't know if this is true. You know, mom ha- had said she was in that Hollywood Hills neighborhood babysitting yep. on, yep. I can't remember the drive, the street, which I I never had a reason to question. And I still really don't, except for then I started to think about mom's mom when she's all, I know Michael Jackson <laughs> or something. You know what I mean? Like, I'm all, were they just like exaggerators? Yeah. <laughs> But either which way, that one is interesting to me. Yeah, very. Uh, of course, very. Dahmer. Ooh, you know the one, I Hate Mondays. The first oh. female, maybe school shooting or female school shooting. We talked about that yeah, on we did. episode for some... You didn't know that oh. I knew about that. Because right. I had seen this little documentary somewhere on I Hate Mondays in the early 80s, I guess. Right. We did some serial killer trivia in the beginning of a few episodes. I think that was one of them. That's a good question. Yeah, that's a great question. Oh, hey, girl. Indiana just came into the room because she wouldn't stop crying. She is so stinking cute. And so the next question we got was from Shan Hauser. And they said, how many episodes do you guys see yourself doing? By the way, love the show. Overall? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I'm not sure. I mean, I think we probably at some point will take a, you know, there's no seasons. But I think at some point it will be beneficial for us to maybe like take a week or two off, mm-hmm. you know, here and there just to refresh because it is, it's kind of, as soon as we record one, I'm researching, writing the next, and then we're recording and editing. So it is kind of constant. So I think just to s- make sure we don't get burnt out and on, on it, which sounds silly, but yeah, probably take a break here and there. But I would say, you know, it's a weekly podcast, probably consistently as long as we continue enjoying it, right? Well, sure. And as I was a going to say as long as there are new murders in the southwest but uh, and unfortunately that'll be essentially unfortunately that's ongoing absolutely yeah so thank you for your questions and for anyone listening we would if you have any questions for us like related to true crime the podcast cases we've covered or even just in general like about our lives you can ask us anything there you go whether or not we're willing to answer You'll be find determined. out. Exactly. Exactly. So let's get into some of this truck driver. We have a couple of listeners. So you guys have heard us talk about our human GPS, Sean Thompson. He's been a listener for a while and I regularly talk to him and he, I ju- but I just found out he's also a truck driver. Right. What did, we didn't know didn't what know he was. That, yeah. yeah. He sent us a message the other day and said, listening to the current lookup list made me think I should let you know that the human GPS is also a truck driver. He said he's never peed in a bottle, which was kind of your top line question for mm-hmm. truck drivers. Sure is and sure was. But he said, but almost all, all off ramps outside of a town will be littered with plastic bottles mm-hmm. that you don't want to mistake for lemonade or tea, lemonade or tea, which you had mentioned actually, I think. So he hauls double trailers from Tucson to El Paso and back five days a week, which is, man, that's going to be exhausting because I, 
I think it's about a four and a half hour drive from Tucson to El Paso. So that means he's, you know, that's eight, nine, nine hours. hours. Yeah, of driving. I guess is, oh, driving. God Every darn. day. Yeah. Truck drivers, uh, and I don't need this answer. This isn't like a burning question of mine, but I do believe that they get, I don't know what pretty well means, get paid fairly well. Yeah. Because it it's not an easy job. And yeah. again, with the world of inflation or the country of inflation right now, what is getting paid well? I don't know. But right. And so every, so we had talked about a hot shot driver because one of our listeners, some, somebody had said that they're a hot shot truck driver. I mentioned that to you. And in one of the recent episodes, you had said you thought that was like maybe a fire. fire and I had no I idea I totally either. did. I thought like right. a, I was thinking of Mount Lemon, like the wild firefighters. Totally. And I had no idea either. But everyone heard heard us talk about that. And every person responded, human nope. GPS. They're all, nope. Adam, milkman, everyone. Even somebody on um, Patreon and I'm going to totally butcher your name, so I apologize. Zeka, it's a really cool name, Z-E-K-A-H. Zeka is also one of our patrons on Patreon and sent us some awesome feedback and awesome messages. But everyone, all of you guys have messaged us to correct us on the hotshot truck driver. So thank you for that. Milkman said, hotshot is a reference to a pickup truck with a trailer attached to it running loads from one location to another. Not a fire truck hot shot. That's another type of hot shot. Oh, okay. So maybe that's where my idea came from. It didn't come out of just nothingness. Sure. A fire truck hot shot. Yeah. Okay. And then and then Adam said, um, a hot shot trucker is someone who delivers crucial must-have items. So that kind of makes sense to me because a hot shot firefighter like goes in in like really crucial emergency mm-hmm. situations, you know? And so Adam said, I... All I haul is power switches to build or repair electrical substations, things that are required to keep your lights on. He's run 60,000 miles since the end of January. Wow. Yeah, it's a lot. But he said the power grid is expanding daily and demand for electricity will continue to go up. And, and said, let me know if you have any other questions. He's also the one who sent us that lovely voice message talking about the Triple T truck stop here in Tucson. With the good apple pie, the yeah. great restaurant, yeah. When you talk about truck stops in southern Arizona, mainly Tucson, first one that comes to mind is the Tucson Truck Terminal, or Triple T, as it's known nowadays. I think it was built in like the 60s, um, but it has one of the most amazing places to eat uh, inside it, mostly serving breakfast, um, but they have amazing desserts, a deep fried apple pie. That is the only place really that when you come to come through Tucson that you have to stop and uh, check out. I think me and Jenna are going to try and go. I asked Adam if we could use his name. He said, absolutely. And he's listening to the to the new episode on his way to Big Springs, Texas tomorrow. Um, now, Milkman, you had asked a bunch of questions. I think you just were kind of like rattling off questions on one of the recent episodes and he mm. answered all of them. So mm. he, you asked about the peeing in bottles, which we've gotten several responses, but he said, yes, some truckers use pee bottles instead of pulling off to the side of the road. And then you asked what he hauls. Mm. He says, I've hauled a lot of things, tankers from dairy farms to milk processing plants, Finished products of milk to local accounts. Ah, oh, this is why he's named Milkman. That's right. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I was about to say, like, that's an odd name. And the last time I think we both said, like, my number one question is, why is that his name? Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, I'm assuming well, now I know. Yeah, I'm assuming that's why. I mean, um, 
we, you had asked, how do they stay awake? He said podcasts and caffeine. Mm. Um, he explained what the hot shot is, which I already read. And then you had asked what his longest haul was. And he said uh-huh. it was from Tacoma, Washington to Billings, Montana. Oh, pretty drive, I bet. Yeah, I bet. And his home base is in the Treasure Valley in Idaho. Hmm. Flipping back and forth, but um, Adam also told us a fun fact about truck stops that the world's largest truck stop is Iowa 80 in Walcott, Iowa, which has 800 parking spaces, a full movie theater, bowling alley, barbershop, and food court. And he said something interesting. I know I already read this to you earlier, but that he said there's so many things about truck stops that people don't understand, that they're probably one of the safest places to stop when traveling. And, and the bad rap that they kind of get is like from the past, from the 70s and 80s. But did he say why? I mean, of course, I came in with my assumption of why now they are more safe than they were in the 70s, 80s. But did he expound on that? He said, tell me another place that has people coming and going 24-7. Trucks cost anywhere from $70,000 to $250,000 and they are left running unattended while drivers are inside getting food, fuel, and any number of other things. Meaning like if they're comfortable leaving their truck. Okay. I, th- I well, think as a woman for Yeah, me, there it is. Yeah. Of course, anywhere, any place shit can happen to anyone. Mm-hmm. But yes, that's what I was thinking of like, sure, maybe I'd feel comfortable leaving my truck, but maybe I wouldn't feel comfortable sitting in a truck alone for two hours or sitting in my car alone or right. going to pee in the yeah. like public restroom that you know who i might knows? feel okay with that i'm thinking of a rest stop yes you are Which where is no there's no attendant there's no gas station exactly it's, just it's like not a, bright lights once you walk in right sure I'm not going thinking. to the restroom at a rest stop in the a middle of arizona stop. between no. here and even phoenix no that never. feels sketchy to me totally if there's no one else there or one other person there, no, thank you. No. I'll pee in a in a bottle. Um, and then the last thing I'll say about this, Zeka, I, I, I don't know how to say your name, so please let us know so I can pronounce it correctly because uh, this person has been super helpful, sent us feedback on our Patreon about what they'd like to see more, just all kinds of great information. And they sent us a message today saying, I wanted to chime in with a couple of things. Again, explaining the hot truck, truck drivers sent a picture and then said that they really enjoy truck driving, though. He said, it gives me a reason to ignore my phone and eat pistachios, smoke cigars, and listen the day away with podcasts, music, and comedy. As drivers, we can drive up to 11 hours a day, then have to park for 10 hours before going again. So that at least guarantees a good night's sleep. And yes, a lot of drivers pee in bottles, some while driving. I have no issues peeing in a Ziploc bag during the night. Because who wants to put on a shirt and shoes and walk a quarter mile to the truck stop bathroom to pee in the middle of the night? But I also throw mine in the trash. Sadly, a lot of drivers throw those pee bottles on the side of the road and into parking lots. Um, And that can often get us banned. Anyways, I think that's probably, we've probably covered enough on our truck drivers. But I do think that we're going to have to do a bonus episode on deeper into this and maybe find some cases that took place at truck stops or with truck drivers. And then as we keep talking about, we're not quite there yet still, but maybe um, have some guests on for a bonus. And I think we can have a truck driver special. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You don't want to miss what happens next in today's murder story, so don't go anywhere. We'll be right back after a short message from our sponsors. 
calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. All right, let's hand into this awfulness. Yeah, Jenna's Jenna's a little bit tentative about this one. So we did our truck driver intro, and now we are going to jump back into part two of the Toy Box Killer. If you recall, we left off with Cynthia Vigil. The last thing that I had kind of explained was that she had been arrested for cocaine possession, I believe, and she was awaiting trial and she was still doing sex work at the time and uh, was in a parking lot in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Someone offered her, a man offered her $20 for oral sex in his car. And when he handed her the money, she reached on to put it in her shoe. When she stood back up, he flashed a badge and said he's an undercover cop and told her she was under arrest for solicitation solicitation of sex and out of nowhere his girlfriend kind of popped up and shocked her with a cattle prod so that wasn't a real uh police officer it was someone who was just saying they were so they could kind of catch her off guard that is correct it was david parker ray and his girlfriend Girlfriend. which is cindy okay actual girlfriend not daughter right remind us of daughter's name jesse jesse thank you I think the last episode I explained all the horrible things that he explained that he was going to do to her. And the last thing I told you guys was that Cynthia was told that other women before her who had been in her same situation had died. And that's kind of where we left it. He also told her that she's just a pretty piece of meat, which that really, Mm -hmm. and again, I understand from what you've shared that that's, these are kind of like the least horrific parts of it or yeah, yeah. and oh. still horrific so she he also explained to her that she had to refer to him and cindy as master and mistress whenever they asked her a question she was to answer yes master yes mistress and failure to do so would result in punishment beyond i guess the punishment she was already enduring and so For the preceding days after this night that she was captured and chained to the table, him and Cindy raped and tortured her using whips, medical instruments, electronic shock. They also invited their friends over and had them rape her while they watched. They would even have their dog, which was apparently a very large, I believe German Shepherd Rottweiler type dog, rape her with like an audience of them and their friends watching. It was kind of a a sick source of entertainment, which I can't comment on. It just, it turns the stomach. Yeah. Amazingly, Cynthia had kind of had the mental 
clarity and capacity even throughout all of this to to recognize that if she had any chance of surviving, she needed to begin studying her surroundings, studying what they were doing and listening to any conversations that she could possibly kind of eavesdrop on between David and Cindy. And that's exactly what she started to do. The toy box was one room. There was also in where they lived, I guess, another room and they would kind of transport victims between them. It, it gets a little bit hazy, which is why I didn't mention it before because it's it's also horrific. It kind of doesn't matter, I feel like. But she began, when they would take her from one room to the other, she would actively try to notice things, notice what was on the walls, listen to what they were saying. And she noticed that there were rules posted everywhere. One rule that stuck out in her mind was never trust a chained captive. And she saw that rule and that set off something in her that she knew her only chance of survival was to escape. She was never going to survive if she stayed there. So on the third day that she was captured, which was March 22nd, 1999, she had now been there for three days, Ray went to work at the parks department and left Cindy in charge of watching Cynthia. Sometime later that afternoon, Cindy got a phone call about a possible business deal. No idea what the business deal was, but it was something that excited her. Cynthia heard Cindy on the phone, very excited about a potential opportunity. And in that moment, Cindy, David's girlfriend, made two crucial mistakes. She left the room, left the toy box, and left Cynthia alone. And she left the keys to Cynthia's chains and padlock nearby within visual range. She didn't think she could reach them. She didn't think she could. And she couldn't. Cynthia couldn't reach them initially. But Cindy was gone for long enough that Cynthia saw the keys and was able to slowly kind of move her body to move the entire contraption that she was restrained in, nudge it. She kind of like inched it. I'm making arm movements right now that obviously no one can see, but like she was kind of like moving her body like this and it would Centimeter by centimeter or half an inch by half an inch. Exactly. And so she did that quietly and continuously until she was able to reach the keys. She got the keys and, you know, her hands were shaking. So she's trying to unlock these restraints. She has a padlock around her neck. She's rushing to get them off because she has no idea when Cindy's coming back in the room. But after days, several days of torture, she's obviously, her hands are shaking. They're not nimble. They're not steady. So she's not able to do it quickly. And so before she could actually unchain herself fully, I believe she got a chain off. But before she could fully kind of free herself, Cindy came back into the room, saw that Cynthia was trying to free herself and grabbed the nearest thing to her, a lamp, and broke it over Cynthia's head and continued to beat her with the lamp. She also had an ice pick nearby that she grabbed and tried to stab Cynthia with it. But Cynthia amazingly throughout all of this managed to get that key in the lock, unlock herself, and get free. She kind of simultaneously was able to free herself from from being chained to this table and then grabbed the ice pick from Cindy and stabbed Cindy in the neck, which Cindy immediately went down. And Cynthia, completely naked with a giant dog collar and padlock around her neck and four feet of chain attached, ran out of the toy box. But the 
the chains had come undone. So she had gotten them off but of the table. it's extra heavy. It's an extra 100 pounds almost totally, probably. Totally. And she just ran. She <laughs> just took off and ran. The will to live. The will to live. Ran. I don't know if that's what that is, but. Oh, I'd imagine it is. Oh. Well, I mean, remember what we learned about Cynthia at this point. She had been beaten, abused, found her mother dead in a ditch, found her best friend killed by like one of her Johns when she was uh, doing sex work. I don't know if that's the right way you say it. Sex working? Yeah, when she was a sex worker. A sex worker, yeah. Even if she just had seen no trauma right. or horrificness in her life, the fear over those many days, however many days, she three, was, days. three days she was there in the toy box, mm-hmm. like it powered her up and got her out of there. And so she ran as fast as she could. She ran and ran and ran and eventually came to a main road, a highway, and continued to run hysterically down the road, covered in blood, naked, five feet of chains like flopping behind her, and no one stops. So she, people passed her in cars people and People passed truck. her in cars. Well, I was going to ask you that. If you, okay, I don't, I don't know what I would do. If I'm being real honest, I don't know what I would do, but you know what I would do? Call 911. Of course. I don't either. I'm not sure what I would do either. I'd be scared. I'd be scared, maybe not of a naked, bloody woman, but scared of what- Who's behind her? There you go. Yep. That's exactly what I think too. And that's- Like, (sighs) I want to get involved because I- I want to help her, but I also want to survive and not get involved. Yeah. And that's, I, I would imagine, how most people feel. Yeah. Um, so I can't necessarily fault those people who drove by, but many people apparently drove by. Did anyone call 911 or you may not know that? I don't know, but I do know that at a certain point, she realized no one's going to stop for her. And she saw a mobile home with lights on and ran straight to the mobile home didn't knock, went straight through the front door, like opened the door, ran <laughs> As in. she should. Yeah. The home belonged to a woman named Darlene Breach. And Darlene, in a later interview, said she came straight in wearing nothing except the chains around her neck and hysterically crying. She was bloody, very bloody. And she was terrified. And apparently Cynthia ran in the door screaming, please don't let them get me. Don't let them get me. Later, Cynthia had said that Darlene was really calm and she kept me really calm right from the moment that I walked in. But then her her husband came in and said, I heard a noise. And he saw me standing there naked, bloody, bloody, bloody. And his eyes, he just froze in the hallway, in the doorway. I mean, he was shocked. And they immediately called 911. When police arrived, Cynthia told them the location of the trailer. But another group of officers was already headed there because a 911 call had come in from the toy box while Cynthia was running and, and finding, you know, solace at this trailer, another 911 call came in, but it never was completed. The The caller hung up and the dispatcher thought from that call, like a struggle took place. So she sent police out there. That call came from Cindy, we can assume, who had been stabbed with an ice pick and was struggling. Uh, um, she was calling to save herself. Yes. Cynthia soon found herself in a hospital bed, trembling, traumatized, but alive. And she somehow found the courage to reveal all of the unbelievable horrors that she had endured over the past three days. And the evidence of this was this torture. It was etched on her body, bruises, 
burn marks inflicted through the electrical shocks, cuts, just... I imagine like vaginal wounds. Absolutely. Anal wounds. Absolutely. Oh. Yeah. So the hospital staff meticulously captured all of this through photographs, which completely validated everything that she was already telling authorities. The details that she divulged were just so grotesque, so twisted that even some of the most uh, seasoned investigators on this case who who were on the force were questioning like this can't be real this is so horrific this woman has to be exaggerating most of them later gave account saying like we'd never heard anything this this didn't it seemed like it was a movie this couldn't be possibly true again i i'm not in law enforcement so i get that that they ha- this is the most horrific thing that they'd ever heard but to me this would your mind go to she mu- she might or must or or possibly is making this up or to me it's like it's so horrific how could someone make it up i i could see both sides of that yeah. i'm not never have worked in law enforcement but, I, but i'd imagine you get you, you know what's what i'm like a hard a thick skin a thank you a thick skin thank you and you hear horrible things but but maybe nothing this horrific. So maybe they were thinking, well, the drugs, she was imagining things, she... Hallucinating. Hallucinating, exactly. And then also I can see it completely the way you said that this is so horrible, who could ever make this up? And obviously something happened to her. If she was in a hospital and they did like a vaginal exam or, you know, all the exams, something happened to her, even if they didn't believe the extent of it. Right. Like shit happened to her that I don't, I guess someone could do it all to themselves, but like no. not. Yeah, no, I think they believed her, but they were wondering, like, could could a nightmare to this extent truly exist? And the only way to, to kind of find out the truth beyond what she was telling them was to launch a comprehensive search and and dig into everything that was at this toy box that was at this location where she said that she had been held and captured and tortured. And for police in these kind of early moments of this, they were kind of blissfully unaware of the scale that this investigation would would take. They had no idea of the depth to what they would find. But so she told them about the toy box. Mm. Was she able to tell them like the location or they already? Oh, wow. Yeah, because she she was cognizant enough apparently when she was leaving and running away that she could then when she got to Darlene's house explain like where she came from. Gotcha. You know, so they were able to The general area at least, which Mm -hmm. will hone it down. Yes. So officers, not the officers who were at the hospital with her, but officers who responded to the interrupted or kind of canceled 911 call that we believe came from Cindy after Cynthia stabbed her with the ice pick. Um, They responded to that call. And as they are driving up to the the property, David, Parker, Ray, and Cindy, David had come home from work at this point. They are both leaving the toy box and trying to leave the property. And they were apprehended in that moment, taken into custody. And they both gave exactly the same statement. They said, we took on a very noble mission. We wanted to aid Cynthia in overcoming a crippling heroin addiction. That's why we chained her up and kept her there. And what's your explanation for helping her uh, detox from her heroin 
in terms of her vagina and anus and breasts and whatever else was punctured and poked and prodded. Obviously. I mean, like, clearly police are listening and, and sure. taking this, but are knowing, mm, this is very different from Cynthia's story and from her injuries. So police clearly had a sneaking suspicion I'd say more than a sneaking suspicion that something is off and we need to investigate this further. Because at this point, it's a he said, she said. They haven't, um, you know, initially they hadn't acquired a warrant to search the toy box and, and look into David and Cindy's backgrounds and stuff. But that all came. They knew they had to do that and they did. So they performed a background check on David that revealed... Um, his employment as a mechanic within the state parks department, which was an occupation that granted him unrestricted access to vast stretches of state land, which initially they thought, well, this detail, uh, you know, who cares? No big deal. But as they got deeper into this, it started to raise more alarm, alarm bells and kind of like, um, came across as concerning. You know, he seemingly had this very ordinary life, but what if within this ordinary life, there was a much, much, much darker reality? And officers were not left wondering what if for very much longer because they secured a warrant to search David's property and headed off to the toy box to see if what Cynthia had depicted to them lined up and, and was true. And again, they had no idea that this seemingly kind of isolated incident was just one single thread in this tapestry of horror that they were going to come upon. So inside the trailer, which was sound fully soundproof, they made plenty of disturbing discoveries that mirrored Cynthia's harrowing account almost to a T because it was to a T exactly that's where she was captured at least from what I believe right now yep they found a gun they found the broken lamp matching the description that she had provided um, the scene also showed clear signs of a recent struggle they came across a fake police badge which was you know also played to her story of, of him pretending to be an undercover cop um, they came across the instructions for taking care of the victim if if David was ever not there. The clothing that Cynthia had been wearing when she was abducted was in the trailer, along with copious medical devices and items used for administering electrical shocks. Uh, they also located the gynecological table and the pole because she had been chained to both and the ice pick that she had used to stab Cindy. They also discovered the audio tape with the 45-minute recording that was recorded in 1993, which was just the best evidence of what she had endured. And in that moment, they couldn't deny this horrible truth. This toy box was the witness to this nightmare that unfolded exactly as Cynthia had told them. And they came across this story that just played out before their eyes with all the evidence of pain and unimaginable suffering. And they got an entire team out there, FBI, I mean, everyone, 
They had everybody that they could out there to very carefully collect evidence from the trailer and and continued to find you know everything we've mentioned whips chains pulleys straps clamps leg spreader bars surgical blades saws detailed diagrams across the walls showing different ways of inflicting pain rules rules exactly there was a homemade electrical generator to electrocute victims with like a higher shock than is normally allowed elaborate contraptions such as a fur-lined coffin and a makeshift pillory what's a pillory a pillory is a wooden framework with holes for the head and the hands it's where uh, people were imprisoned and exposed to public abuse in you know, many, many years ago, kind of Mid- a, a, medieval times. Yes, exactly. Sounds like almost what happens before you go in the guillotine. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. There were elaborate locks to prevent his cap, David's captives from escaping. There was a mirror mounted to the ceiling above the obstetric table where he strapped his victims. They also found a videotape from 1996 that was a recording of all of the abuse and sexual assault that Kelly Garrett endured. The victim who, if you recall, police didn't believe her and her husband didn't believe her and divorced her because he thought she was cheating when she was actually abducted. They also came across a twisted playbook that David had written for how to handle a sex slave. It outlined the necessity for using bondage. The neck collar symbolized an inescapable fate. Psychological torment was an important role in this, which included using a blindfold and a slow, methodical approach to torturing victims. Verbal abuse was part of every action, as well as strategically positioning the victim in different positions. In the pillory, on the table, in the coffin, all the different places. Different positions in which to assault the victim. Yeah. And the importance of detailing everything that was about to happen in order to keep the victims from thinking too much, to just keep them horrified is what he has in this notebook. This playbook stressed the importance of maintaining an unsteady footing, both mentally and physically, and keeping victims in a perpetual state of stress, keeping them off balance. The objective was to break the victim's will, rendering them compliant and obedient. It also included a list of 16 techniques for manipulating and brainwashing, including isolation, fear tactics, abuse, and sporadic acts of kindness, a calculated approach to mold the victim into a pliable slave, leaving her on edge and uncertain of what awaited her next. There was evidence, although potentially not enough evidence, but evidence of multiple, multiple murders in the diaries that David kept and detailed the brutal slaying of many women over the years. He wrote, he like kept journals meticulously and wrote about everything he was doing. It was only, he only attacked women. Mostly. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. Authorities also uncovered hundreds of hundreds of pieces of jewelry, clothing, and other personal effects that clearly were not from one, you know, hundreds of hundreds. This is jewelry and clothing from many, many women. Like he kept them as like um, mm-hmm. tokens or whatever. Yep. That's the wrong word, but. What they found in this trailer 
was enough to inspire a, a complete search of the property. And they did search the property thoroughly. I'd hope so. And found multiple bone fragments that ended up being from animals, unfortunately, and not humans. They had over 100 agents. The FBI had over 100 agents on their ca- on this case and extended the search into Phoenix, Tucson, El Paso, and Juarez, Mexico. They also brought in the BAU and used behavioral analysis profilers because they were trying to to understand this man who who potentially had been doing this for decades and they had no idea for decades that the FBI turned um, the town of truth or consequences which was seven miles from Ray's trailer into headquarters for law enforcement and media. So the entire town of Truth or Consequences basically was taken over by the FBI and it became their headquarters for searching everywhere and trying to uncover this, you know, this. But but I imagine at some point, whether David Parker Ray, whether David Parker Ray was apprehended, arrested, all the things, at some point they had to do a psyche val on him or something. And I'm not saying it, that even fucking matters at this point once they know who did it, but like, come on. Sure. Yes. Oof. Yes. So based on everything they found in the trailer at this point and, and over the course of the investigation, which went on for a while, they were able to come up with a list of other suspected victims that had disappeared over the years that they had, you know, they didn't know that this, <laughs> they didn't know anything about David Parker. They had no idea that this was, they didn't know a, till they knew. Exactly. Yeah. And so they had a list of other victims and you had just asked if it was only women. So Billy Ray Bowers, who was 53, he disappeared from Phoenix, Arizona in 1988 in 1989, the body of an unknown man wrapped in a blue tarp was found by a fisherman at Elephant Butte Lake. No identification was on him. They found that he had been shot in the back of the head. They eventually were able to identify who he was through dental records, and he was the co-owner of Canal Motors, a used car business in Phoenix, Arizona, that had employed David Parker Ray, who worked there as a mechanic, years and years ago. At this point, though, they didn't have any confirmation that David Parker Ray had been involved in this death of Billy Ray Bowers, but they, the connection was there, so they thought maybe. 22-year-old Jill Suzanne Troya was last seen in Albuquerque, New Mexico in 1995. She had gone to a bar with friends and then went with her girlfriend, Glenda Jean Jesse Ray, when they left the bar to go to a restaurant, uh, there were several witnesses at the time that had reported that Jesse and Jill had an argument. But Jesse later told police, police that she left Jill at the restaurant and went home with her father, David. Did and you not start this? The Didn't I know that? Did you not say that at one point? Like, Well, that's what happened with... Thank you. Yeah, yes. I knew there was something reminiscent Kelly there. Kelly Garrett. Yep. Yeah. Okay. That's how she, Thank you. yeah. And so that was Jesse's story with this Jill Suzanne Troya. But Troya was never heard from or seen again. Ever? Never. Eesh. And in the diaries and notebooks that they found in, in David's trailer, they f- 
found detailed accounts of sexual tortures and burials of many victims, but one in particular, which he ex- he described in his writings as an Asian woman who fitted Jill's description perfectly. So they thought, okay, maybe she was a victim. Among the possessions that they found at the trailer was a two-page letter dated from June 1990 to a young woman named Connie from an Australian man named Mark. According to Ray's journal, Connie was a woman that he abducted and murdered in December 1995 when she was 18 years old. He described her meticulously, long blonde hair, a birthmark on her chest, and the Australian Federal Police and FBI conducted an investigation hoping to locate Mark to identify Connie. They were unable to do so. Her remains have never been located or linked to any to, to any murderer until now. And now they, they feel like what's written again in his, I mean, he just incarcerated him, incriminated himself basically by writing in these journals all these detailed accounts. Don't miss what happens next in today's episode. We'll be right back after a short message from our sponsors. They still didn't find her remains. No, there's not concrete evidence at this point. But they're it's they're drawing all these concrete evidence to me, which I get. Right, maybe doesn't stand up in a court of law. Exactly, they're drawing all the connections though. And there were uh, there were there were more. There were many more. This last bit is not related to any one potential or actual victim in particular, but in 1999, a man named Ralph Tudor, he was a 61-year-old El Paso resident, he was fishing at Elephant Butte Butte Lake, and he caught on his line an 80-pound gunny sack uh, filled with what he thought was a dead animal or trash. Uh, This gunny sack was split kind of along the seam, and once he fished it out, he thought, "Uh uh-oh, this might be filled with actually a human. This is very heavy. So he contacted um, the authorities. Before he opened it? I believe so. I mean, good for him. My curiosity would have gotten the best of me, and also I would have regretted it, I'm sure, if I'm guessing whatever was found was found, Mm -hmm. but good for him. So they opened it, and it did contain human flesh, but no organs or bones, So whoever was in that gunny sack was mutilated, dismembered, and dismembered before being dumped in the lake. When they later on questioned David Parker Ray about this uh, gunny sack and did he have anything to do with it, he, he wouldn't agree that he did or didn't, but he said the thing to do with victims is you cut them down to the belly, scoop out their guts, fill the chest cavity with cement, and then use bailing wire to wrap them up and dump them in the lake. So they sink, sink, sink. Mm-hmm. Also, I was thinking the fishes might eat whatever's left. Yeah, the, the flesh. flesh. Yeah. Although yeah. flesh was found, I'm sure it's like DNA remnants of flesh. Well, the DNA that they identified from that gunny sack, the, the remains as they were in that gunny sack was identified as a female, but not linked to any reporting missing woman. They can never identify who it was. Mm. At this point, David Parker Ray and Cindy Hendy are both arrested and detained, and they were charged with 12 counts each 
counts that included kidnapping, aggravated battery, and conspiracy, but did not include murder in any way. They cannot officially link them to any murders at this point. So this is all that they can hold them on. Okay, like aggravated assault. Oh, right. aggravated okay. battery, kidnapping, aggravated battery, and conspiracy. I mean, to me, that my mind went, "What the fuck?" Yeah. What? So, what? It, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> yes, it's a big what. Oh, and yeah. if you want to find out the answer to that what, mm. you will have to tune in next week to part three of the Toy Box Killer. It will be the first ever part three episode that we've ever had, but. Again, I think you said it perfectly last time. This is a heavy, heavy story. And that's it. It's heavy. You take it piece by piece. Piece I mean, this is all my little head and heart can handle right now. (laughs) Also, what is my ending question? What? What? Wow. Yeah. So we will... um, yeah, you can hear Henry maybe outside the door. He's pretty upset about it too. He's had enough for his head in his heart. He has. So we will end it here and say thank you for listening. And I think more than ever, we need to hear what you always say. Good night and good luck. And I'm also going to say my other one, hug your loved ones. That's Gosh. One, yeah, that's the one I was talking about. This is This is a lot. And also everyone go like, cleanse your energy however you do that whether it's like go outside uh, have a bath uh, have a cocktail (laughs) um, stretch your arms (laughs) um, visualization meditation animals pet your animals hug your loved ones yeah yeah woof Uh, let's end it there thank you guys for listening we will be back with a bonus you know whenever we come out the monday and And then the third and then part three will be tuesday but part two will be Okay. That yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Whatever. Yeah. 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 She'll figure it out, guys. <laughs> I'll try to. Uh, again, thank you for listening. And I just want to say, please, please, please send us, keep sending us your questions, podcast related or not. And we love you guys. And that's it. Bye. Bye bye. Bye. Death by Southwest is hosted by Jenna Schneider and Margot Carmichael. Executive produced by Margot Carmichael. Produced by Jenna Schneider. Audio editing and sound design by Margot Carmichael. Music by Soundstripe. And a special thanks to Edward R. Murrow for letting us borrow his famous sign-off phrase, good night and good luck. <laughs>